You're listening to the podcast of Church of the Holy Cross in Popper Bluff, Missouri, a community of faith learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at holycrosspb.org. Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. When I was young, I, like many children of a certain age, thought that it would be the greatest thing in the world to become an astronaut when I got older. This was in the early 1990s when the space shuttle program was in full swing, having recovered from the Challenger tragedy and subsequent grounding of the shuttle fleet in the late 1980s. NASA was launching shuttle missions several times a year. And the crews of those missions would often do video link lessons and chats with school children back on Earth. I remember watching some of those and seeing the astronauts float effortlessly around their spacecraft and I would think, I want to do that someday. It turns out that all I needed to make that dream happen was billions of dollars in control of a company like Amazon to support me. As I got older, I realized that I would never be an astronaut, but there was nothing stopping me from reading everything I could find about the history of human spaceflight. And so I dove into stories about personalities like John Glenn, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, Pete Conrad, John Young. I read interviews with current and former astronauts and tried to imagine what spaceflight would be like. I learned that for many astronauts, liftoff is the moment when they realize the magnitude of what they're doing. These astronauts are immensely well-trained. They've spent hundreds of hours in flight simulators by the time they take off from the launch pad. But they say that the simulators cannot replicate the experience of when those massive rocket engines fire and you feel the shaking and the throttling and then you feel these engines propel you out of the Earth's atmosphere. On August 18, 1994, the space shuttle Endeavour was scheduled to blast off from launch pad 39A at Kennedy Space Center in Cape Canaveral, Florida. The countdown went as planned. At T minus 6.6, that is 6.6 seconds before the launch, the three shuttle main engines fired. Those are the big bell-shaped engines on the rear of the shuttle those fire six or so seconds before launch, and that causes the entire shuttle structure, the gigantic orange external tank, the two solid rocket boosters, and the shuttle orbiter, orbiter to pitch forward under the thrust of those massive engines. The space shuttle was designed to do that. It's bolted to the launch pad, and as those main engines fire seconds before launch, everything pitches forward because the shuttle is actually on the back of the, the assembly. Everything goes forward, and you feel this kick in your pants, they say, and then everything starts settling down, and at the moment that the shuttle system settles back down into a vertical attitude, that's when the solid rocket boosters ignite, those bolts blast away, the bolts that are connecting the shuttle to the launch pad, and everything takes off. And you're hurtling through the atmosphere toward orbit. 
Two minutes later, the solid rocket boosters would burn out and fall away, and at around eight and a half minutes after launch, the main engines would shut down as the shuttle reached orbit. And that is when the astronauts would experience weightlessness for the first time. So you go from feeling the thrust of these massive rocket engines behind you, hurtling you into space, to nothing. Absolute nothing and weightlessness. One former astronaut said in an interview, it's a hell of a ride. I hope you get to do it someday. On August 18, 1994, the astronauts inside Endeavour knew all of this. They knew what was going to happen. They knew the procedure. They'd prepared for months. And there must have been a they must have been experiencing a cascade of emotions, excitement, nervousness, and that one they always talk about, the fear of screwing up. The main engines fired as planned, and then the countdown continued. Five, four, three, two, one, and then nothing. Endeavor's onboard computers had sensed something wrong with temperatures in the main engines, and they automatically shut the engines down less than two seconds before the planned launch. So instead of feeling that kick in your pants and rocketing to space, the astronauts had to wait on the launch pad, strapped into their seats for the launch team to get them out of the vehicle. And then they had to wait for a month while technicians figured out what the problem was and until another launch window opened. Now, I doubt that many of us have experienced what it's like to be strapped onto the top of a rocket and feel the launch canceled at the last minute, the last second. But I would bet that most of us understand what it feels like to prepare yourself for something only to have that something canceled or removed from you at the last moment. We know what it feels like to anticipate something that doesn't end up happening. We understand the feelings of disappointment and frustration it causes. Those feelings are a key part of the story of early Christianity. Many of the earliest followers of Jesus expected that Jesus would return to earth during their lifetime. They thought that Jesus had gone to heaven for a little while and that he would come back soon, very soon, in a matter of days, weeks, months. But then that first generation of Christians starts to die away, and Jesus has still not returned. They must have been disappointed. They must have been frustrated. They may have been confused. Now, Parker mentioned this briefly last week, but I want to expand on it a little bit. Most Bible scholars do not think that Paul is actually the author of Ephesians. We call it the letter of Paul to the church in Ephesus, but there are two problems with that. Paul probably didn't write it, and it probably wasn't written to the church in Ephesus. It was probably actually a circular letter that was sent among uh, different churches. The language, the structure, and the theology are very different from Paul's other letters, Romans, 1 Corinthians, things like that. We think that Ephesians was probably written by someone who admired Paul and who used Paul's name to add a bit of authority to their writing. Now, this was a common practice in the ancient world. Nobody would have thought that it was unusual or unethical like we would today. Today, we would say that's a forgery. That's not really Paul's. Back then, they knew that. They didn't care. It was a common practice. The reason that this, is, that this information is important is because of the implications it has for the date when the letter of Ephesians was written. 
Paul's letters are probably the earliest of the New Testament texts. Paul's letters are probably written somewhere in the 50s AD, a mere 20 years or so after Jesus' life and death. There were people around who had known Jesus when Paul was writing. So Paul is a representative of the belief that Jesus is going to come back very soon. And this belief informs Paul's theology and it drives the impetus of Paul's letters. You have to get your act together because Jesus is coming back any day now. The world is bad and evil and painful and ugly, but it's okay because Jesus is coming back and he's going to put everything right. Romans chapter 8 is a great example of this when Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. The author of Ephesians, on the other hand, is part of a later generation. The theology of Ephesians is more, Jesus hasn't come back yet, what do we do now? The answer the author gives us is this. You have already been saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Your salvation is not something future that we're waiting on. It's happening now. So let's make sure that our life in the church reflects the fact that we are set apart by God for something special. Now I'm going to say for a moment that I think that we in the modern church are sometimes pretty good at recognizing that we're part of something special. Sometimes I think we're too good at recognizing that. All too often we see ourselves as God's chosen and thus the guardians of everything that's sacred and holy, instead of seeing ourselves as sinners in need of God's mercy. I read one time that there has never been a religious movement in the history of the world that saw some other group as God's chosen. Every religious movement in the history of the world is about we are God's chosen. I heard a story once about a young woman who attended a small time, small town, not small time, small town congregation in another part of the country. <laughs> this young woman was not married, and she ended up pregnant. In what was possibly the most vulnerable moment in her life, she turned to her church for support. She needed someone in that moment to show her love and understanding. But the leadership of the church decided that in order for the young woman to remain in good standing and in order for her to continue attending the church, she would have to publicly apologize to the entire congregation for what she had done. <coughs> so God's people had an opportunity to witness God's love and mercy to someone who desperately needed to experience it. But instead, we chose to embarrass her. We chose shame over grace. And yes, I said we. It didn't happen here. It didn't happen in a congregation that I was a part of. But it happened in the church. And thus, it was we that did it. We decided that we were God's special people, and that meant it was our responsibility to decide what conditions had to be met before a broken person could receive healing. The author of Ephesians prays in this morning's reading that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be fulfilled with all the fullness of God. Let's dwell on that for a second. Being filled with the fullness of God means knowing and comprehending the unknowable 
and incomprehensible expanse of God's love. O love, how deep, how broad, how high, as the hymn goes. Being filled with the fullness of God means living into God's love. It means loving those whom God loves. I tried to think of an example of this kind of love lived out. <coughs> Excuse me. And I came to realize that there is a great example contained in today's gospel reading. Let me just read the key part of the gospel again. Now the Passover, the festival of the Jews, was near. When he looked up and saw a large crowd coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread for these people to eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Six months' wages would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they among so many people? Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were satisfied, he told his disciples, Gather up the fragments left over, so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, and from the fragments of the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten, they filled twelve baskets. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they began to say, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. There's a lot going on in that passage. First of all, it takes place at Passover, the Jewish feast of celebrating release from slavery in Egypt. Barley, the grain the bread in the story was made of, was usually harvested around Passover time. So Jesus, by feeding the multitude at Passover, is declaring that he is the true Passover, the true source of freedom. <coughs> Furthermore, John is the only gospel writer who does not tell the story of the Last Supper and the institution of the Eucharist. So this story, and the one that immediately follows it, the one about Jesus saying that his body is true blood, bread and his blood is true drink, these are John's way of theologizing the Eucharist, talking about what the Eucharist is all about. But for our purposes today, I want to focus on one thing that Jesus does and one thing Jesus does not do. After Jesus tells the disciples to have the people sit down on the grass, and after the disciples get everybody arranged and everything sorted out, <coughs> get everybody a plate, Jesus takes the loaves of bread, he gives thanks, and then he gives the loaves to the people. He gives thanks. He does not dwell on how little bread he has. He simply gives thanks for what he does have. And by the way, the Greek word here is eucharistesis, or have the term and having given thanks. It's a form of the word eucharisto, which means I thank. And that is the origin of our word Eucharist. Eucharist is giving thanks. And after giving thanks, Jesus gives everybody he ha everything he has away to anybody who needs it. We don't know anything about the people in the crowd. We know that there are about 5,000 of them. But we don't know anything about their lives or personalities. Are they Jews? Are they Gentiles? Are they Samaritans? What's the balance of men to women? Are there any children in the crowd? Are the people in the crowd ritually pure? Do they follow the commandments about what you need to do to enter the temple and approach God? The reason we don't know who they are is that Jesus does not seem to care. He does not sit down and interview each person to make sure they're worthy of the gifts they're going to receive. He doesn't check to make sure that every person is morally upright. He doesn't ask about their theology or politics and 
I don't like criticizing one of our sister denominations in this Christian movement, but Jesus does not turn anybody away from the table because of their stance on abortion. He simply sees people in need and he feeds them. In that simple act, we see the profound love of God. We started by talking about how to keep up hope during the long wait for Jesus to return to earth and make everything right. I think we might see a model in Jesus' instructions to Peter at the end of John's Gospel, when Jesus says, Peter, feed my sheep. While you are waiting for me to come back, feed my sheep. If you want to experience the overwhelming love of God in action, feed my sheep. Dr. Mike Graves was my homiletics professor at St. Paul School of Theology. Great person, uh, an ordained minister in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, who's one of our two professors of preaching and worship. And he told a story about something that happened to him while he was at a professional conference one time. Uh, I think they were in Ohio, but the location doesn't matter. But he was at this professional conference, theologian conference, and they had heard about this Mennonite restaurant that was just outside of town. And that's where everybody wanted to go because it was a wonderful place to eat, had the best food in the area. And so the group of people he was with decided, we have to go to this restaurant. But everything they had heard said, you must get there early because they don't take reservations and they fill up quickly. And if you don't get there early, you're going to have to wait for hours to get a table. So the last couple of sessions of the conference sort of drug on and drug on and it was five o'clock, six o'clock, and they realized that they weren't going to be able to go eat dinner if they didn't leave now. So Dr. Graves and one of the other professors at the conference said, we'll go, we'll get a table, everybody else, there was a group of about 10 of them, everybody else, you come when you're done. So they get in their cars, they drive out to the restaurant. When they get to the restaurant, they find the parking lot is <coughs> filled with cars. They don't have a place to park. They have to kind of wedge their car in between two others on the grass, you know. And they go in, and they're going to get a table, Graves Party of Ten, and they see a sign at the desk at the restaurant that says, it's a beautiful hand-carved sign. I mean, think Mennonite restaurant. Everything's going to be, you know, hand-done. The sign says, everyone in your party must be here for you to check in. But the restaurant is packed. There's not an empty table visible. And Dr. Graves said, we looked at each other and we decided there's no way we're going to get a table before everybody else gets here. So we went ahead and said, my name's Graves. I need a table for 10 people. And the old Mennonite man, bearded, plain dress, who was at the front desk, the manager of the restaurant, said, OK, have a seat for a minute. We'll get you a table. They'd been sitting for maybe five minutes when he came back and he said, Graves, party of 10. And Dr. Graves and his colleague look at each other and think, what are we going to do? So they say, we don't actually have all of our party here right now. The rest are on their way, but it's just two of us. The old Mennonite man looked at him and said, but you told me that everyone was here. Dr. Graves said, yeah, I, I did. I told you everybody was here. The Mennonite man said, so you lied. And Dr. Graves said, yeah, I, I guess I did. I did. I lied. I'm sorry. Mennonite man looks at them sternly and says, you two come with me. And they're thinking, what's going on? What's Mennonite punishment look like? They're envisioning stocks, you know, an hour in the stocks. And he leads them 
back through the restaurant. They're walking through everybody else who's eating, who's kind of looking at the stern-faced man leading them, and so everybody knows something's up. And they go to the back door of the restaurant. He thinks he's going to kick us out the back where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the manager of the restaurant opens the door and says, in there. And they walk in, and there's a, it's the biggest banquet room the restaurant has. They've saved this for large parties who get there unexpectedly. And it is filled with bread. There are candles lit on the table, and the table is this long table set for 10 people, and there are baskets of bread everywhere. And they look at this, and they look back at the man who led them back there, and they're kind of confused, and he says, why don't you two sit down and have some bread? You're forgiven. And that, friends, is the essence of the gospel. You're forgiven. Have some bread. Amen. Thank you.